I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Curbing their enthusiasm, Uber and Lyft drivers are on strike across North America and beyond on this Valentine's Day. One of those drivers tells us, without better pay and transparency, fewer people will do that work on any day of the year. Raising his voice, the mother of a student killed in the Parkland school shooting, explains why she's used artificial intelligence to recreate her son's voice to help her in her fight for gun reform. Leading questions, a former general is poised to become Indonesia's president despite accusations of human rights abuses. We speak with an author who worries this could mean the end of democracy in his country. Homeland insecurity. For the first time in almost 150 years, the U.S. Congress votes to impeach a member of cabinet. But an expert who testified before the House says they had no legal grounds to do that. Giving us a lot of lip, they didn't believe evidence of humans kissing only dated back three and a half thousand years. So two Danish academics, who happened to kiss each other on the regular, decided to set the smooching record straight. And tone deaf. If you didn't hear that tiny, endearing crack in Alicia Keys' voice during her Super Bowl performance, you never will. Because in the official video, someone has papered over that crack. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that always compares notes. For the people from Uber and Lyft who pick you and your food up regularly, it's not just about what piece of the pie they're getting. It's about knowing how the pie is sliced to begin with. Today, thousands of drivers and couriers are on strike across Canada and beyond. They say they're underpaid for their services, and they're demanding more transparency over how their pay is calculated. Among those striking today is Brees Sofer. He's the vice president of Gig Workers United, and he delivers for Uber Eats and DoorDash in Toronto. That's where we reached him. Brees, what do you bring in on a, on a typical day of deliveries? How much money? Uh, it depends how long I go out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I right these days, I've usually just been going out for searches at uh, lunch and dinner time. On Monday, I went out for a lunch shift, and I was out for two hours, and I made $20 in total. Uh, the last week, um, the previous uh, time I went out, uh, I worked for two hours, and I made $5.40. So it does it does vary from day to day and obviously how it much does. you're working. Yes. Uber uh, in the US at least ha- has said its drivers can can make as much as $33 an hour again that's in the US but but when you see a number like that do you feel that it's representative of what you and other drivers are bringing in? No, I, I feel like it's completely unrepresentative. Uh, I've never heard of anyone making that amount uh, for years. There was a certain period of time during uh, the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, the early days of the pandemic, uh, where uh, that was possible because people uh, were ordering quite a bit. Uh, but in the last few years, uh, I've never approached that, and I've never heard anyone else approaching that. In fact, uh, drivers are uh, and, and delivery people are working longer and longer hours because they're earning less and less and, and less. This is not your only source of income, but it is a big part of the way that, that you do bring in money for, for your home and household. What drew you to this work? Uh, what drew it to me was the actual the, the promise that these companies actually use to draw a lot of people into this work. Uh, I've always had gig types of work uh, throughout my life. I'm a DJ. I, I work at clubs. Sometimes I would make a lot of money. And sometimes if uh, it was a low season, I wasn't making enough money. So I turned to this type of work uh, because uh, of the vaunted flexibility, uh, the ability to work it around my other sources of income. There are times in my life uh, where I have relied solely on this work as a as a source of income. And uh 
you know, what I found is that, you know, instead of being, you know, liberating, uh, because I would go out and I wouldn't earn as much as I needed to earn, I found that my life was bending around this work, that I was working mm-hmm. more and more and more. I hear that happening to a lot of people, that that they end up uh, working 16-hour days sometimes, sleeping in their car, uh, and having no free time to spend with their family, no free time to, to do their hobbies or, or other things that might give their life pleasure. They end up existing just to do this work because they go out and they don't earn enough money to survive. When you do get paid, how much of a cut has the company taken? It varies. Uh, that's a big issue that we have, is that there is very little pay transparency. Uh, for example, with the information that Uber pro- provides me in, in the app, I don't know how much I'm paid for the time that a delivery takes. I don't know how much I'm paid for the distance. Uh, the amount that I'm paid, uh, the base amount, can change from second to second based on what the algorithm uh, you know, decides. And uh, I, I really do not know what the cut is. Uh, that's one of the big issues that we have here. Uber Canada last month, you may have heard, announced some changes to provide drivers in British Columbia and Ontario more transparency about their earnings to allow them to see the estimated fare and expected destination before they accept a trip. So before you, you, you as a driver would accept that trip. Is that going to help? I think that that's I mean, that helps, but uh, I wouldn't say that that's something that they should be applauded for. Uh, You know, if we are independent contractors, uh, as they say, uh, that's information that we should have always been privy to. Uh, That's the base uh, type of information that any independent contractor has. You mentioned you're classified as independent contractors, as gig workers are. Uh, If if you were classified as, as employees, you know, changing that distinction, would it make a difference for you? It would make it would make an enormous difference. Number one, uh, we would be able to have minimum wage. Uh, the, uh, you know, the my earnings I quoted to you mm-hmm. obviously fall far below the minimum wage in Ontario. Uh, ride fare, there was a report uh, released earlier this week where they were talking about rideshare drivers and that they made uh, about an average, I think, of $6.40 an hour. So that would be the first thing that would change and that would make a big difference, even though we know at this point that in a lot of jurisdictions, uh, minimum wage still isn't enough. It's not a living wage. It's not an amount that allows people to live a dignified life. The other big thing that uh, that it would help is uh, we would be privy to protections uh, in health and safety that a lot of uh, Canadians, a lot of working people uh, take for granted. As the strike was getting underway, DoorDash says it wasn't expecting this to affect customers. Once it got underway, Uber Technologies said it is not having any impact on operations. Uber has also said that the majority of its workers are satisfied with the status quo. So given what these companies are saying, how are you feeling about the impact your job action may or may not have? I think I think you know it's that that's a good question. You know, I, I can tell I get surveys from Uber all the time, uh, and in my organizing, I talk to a lot of workers, and they don't bother to fill them out. So the people that do that tend to fill them out are people that might be more satisfied with the job. The times that I have filled it out, the questions have been extremely leading. They're uh, you know, they, and and I don't think that they present an accurate uh, representation of how workers feel. Beyond that. If workers were satisfied, if Uber was, you know, was correct, why would they be doing job actions all over the world? Why would this be an ongoing issue? Why do we keep talking about this? If everything is so good, why are why would workers be continuously doing this? As far as the uh, the effects of this job action, this has been in the news all over the country today. The fact that it's gone to the forefront of people's minds, I think it is an enormous achievement. Brice, thank you for your time. Yeah, appreciate it. Brice Sofer delivers food for Uber Eats and DoorDash. He's on strike today in Toronto. That's where we reached him. He was a general under the late Indonesian dictator Suharto, and now Prabowo Sobianto is set to become the country's next president. 
He celebrated this evening in Jakarta, as early counts suggested he had won nearly 60% of the vote. He has been accused of carrying out human rights abuses in the 90s, but Mr. Prabowo has been able to rebrand himself with help from the current president, whose son is his running mate. And that has left some worried about the future of democracy in Indonesia. Andreas Harsono is a researcher with Human Rights Watch. We reached him in Jakarta. Andreas Prabowo Subianto is certainly celebrating, making jokes uh, in his victory speech, and his supporters are celebrating too. How is the result, though, sitting with you? It's a sad day for me. I was expecting it, looking at the survey, but it is still shocking. What makes it so shocking? It is still shocking to see TV screen someone who had been dismissed as an army officer, who had been indicted for mass killing, kidnapping, could now declare he is the president of Indonesia. It is also shocking to know that his running mate is the son of a hugely popular president who 10 years ago was seen to be a reformer. It is still Shocking to see on TV. Mm. Prabowo Subianto has and continues to deny allegations of human rights abuses when he was uh, an army officer, uh, as you mentioned. Joko Widodo is the outgoing president, the person who will become the vice president, Widodo's son, Mr. Subianto's running mate. He wasn't supposed to even be able to run according to election laws in Indonesia. So what happened? Uh, He is 36 years old. The election law says the minimum age should be 40. Does someone file a petition at the constitutional court? And it was accepted by bending the rules, saying that someone who is an elected official could run for the vice president. The chief justice of the constitutional court is President Jokowi's brother-in-law. So there is a smell of nepotism in the court ruling. Later, the ethical committee of the court investigated and they found out that the chief justice, the brother-in-law, had breached the code of conduct of the court, thus dismissed from the chief justice position, but not from the court. Tens of millions of people voted for Prabowo. Uh, young people in particular. Uh, Reuters describes what has happened, quote, the pinnacle of a political rehabilitation that has been decades in the making, end quote. So what convinced all of those young people that he was the right candidate? It began five years ago when President Jokowi picked up Prabowo to be the defense minister. Of course, it was controversial. This is a dismissed army general fired becoming the defense secretary. But then President Jokowi advised Prabowo to run, of course, and also changing his image from, you know, an aggressive general to be a cuddly grandfather. And it worked. Not to say about the state resources like the Constitutional Court, the General Election Commission, and the social assistance program using state budget dispersed to areas where Prabowo might not get enough food to win. So that is a huge help from President Jokowi. You mentioned the human rights abuses that he's alleged to have committed that you believe have been now forgotten by voters. What do you want to remind people of? Like it or not, elected officials need to be transparent and straightforward on this human rights issue starting with stating clearly where they stand and why. And, you know, Prabowo is expected to also deal with that. So he needs to state his position. This is almost impossible, but let's hope for the best. He will also address past human rights abuses. Do you think realistically he'll do that, given the image-making that you described and the fact that he denies those allegations? My brain tells me that it is hard to to expect, but who knows? You know, 
I am in a very difficult situation. Many Indonesians are in a very difficult situation, especially journalists, human rights defenders, academic. Uh, but of course, we are going to say these are the right path to go forward. But still, it is a big question. If you are, if your rights are being abused, you know, masculine happen in the future. Will the victims, will the families of the victim, will they trust the president to investigate? Does this apparent victory make you feel less safe? Yes. Yes, I know what is going on. I have been doing this work for more than three decades. I know that the stake is really, really high. Indonesia is seen as a vibrant democracy over the last two decades. But now the door to the dark past is open. What will the next days and weeks be like for you? I guess I will play defensive. Uh, this is going to be, hopefully not, but it might be an authoritarian regime. I will, of course, still demand accountability of present and past human rights abuses. Uh, but at least, to be realistic, what I need to do is to prevent this authoritarian, this authoritarianism to turn into violence. It is going to be authoritarian, but hopefully not violent. Andreas, I thank you very much for your time. Take care. Thank you. Andreas Harsono is an author and a researcher with Human Rights Watch. We reached him in Jakarta. Sophie Lund Rasmussen and Trolls Pank Arbal aren't experts in kissing per se. I mean, they have experience with kissing, especially with each other, actually. They've been a couple for almost 16 years, and they are experts in subjects. She studies hedgehogs, and he researches ancient Mesopotamian languages and writing. But somehow they found themselves correcting the record on just how long humans have been smooching. And they say the evidence dates back much, much longer in history than some thought. We reached them both in Copenhagen, Denmark. Sophie, trolls, uh, I think most people just assume kissing has been around forever. Romantic kissing. How were we all so wrong for all this time? Well, in my field of astrology, where I study the ancient Middle East, we've known for several decades that that the kiss was quite old from uh, our sources. But uh, now we've finally made this uh, information available to the larger public and... uh, it's received great interest. Sophie, did it surprise you? Yes, it actually did. And uh, originally, Trolls and I were just discussing this published study on herpes virus in the Bronze <laughs> Age. And uh, we came across the claim that the kiss originated in, in India, uh, 1500 BC. And I thought that was really interesting. And then Trolls went, I think I can beat that with a thousand years. <laughs> so we just ran upstairs to the office and, and studied all the sources he remembered. <laughs> uh, and a passion project was born. Just that study you were mentioning, that was in 2022. You come across a study on herpes, and that was dating it back to 1500 BC, romantic kissing, uh, as you said. As trolls, you were, you were digging around into other sources. What did you find that brings us to this conversation today? Yeah, well, um, so in astrology, we study uh, the world's first written script, or perhaps first written script, the cuneiform writing, which was invented in uh, ancient Iraq, uh, circa 3200 BCE, and used uh, into the first century in the Common Era. They wrote on clay tablets, so they're incredibly uh, durable. You know, we, we have a lot of sources available. And when they start formulating, you know, myths uh, and the like around 2600, 2500 BCE, 
you start to get some uh, juicy stories, you might say. Oh. And one of these uh, revolves around some guards uh, that have intercourse and then kiss afterwards. So this is really evidence of afterwards. Of this okay, case. interesting. Sexual romantic kissing. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be a postcoital activity in the <laughs> early sources. Secrets revealed. Is it possible that it may date? back even further than what you've dated it back to 2500 BC, a thousand years earlier, as you've said, than that original paper yeah, you're looking I mean, at. I mean, it's difficult always to date these ancient manuscripts, mm -hmm. but obviously it's also possible that some of these stories were even older, of course. And we certainly know from the uh, various studies we went through that there are these biological human behaviors mm -hmm. that relate to kissing that seem to go quite far back into prehistory. So I would imagine if we are to search for some sort of origin, we have to go very far back. And Sophie, biology is your area of expertise. Why do you think romantic kissing came about all of those years ago? Yes, because, I mean, right now we have mentioned the earliest documentation, as we currently know it, for kissing, sexual romantic kissing. But I think this behavior is way older than that. And the reason why I think so is that when we look at the behavior of our closest living relatives, the chimps and the bonobos, uh, they also engage in sexual kissing. Uh, at least the bonobos, they really, really do uh, enjoy sexual kissing. <laughs> so if they're doing that behavior, it could indicate that this has been around for many, many, many years. And that's really interesting. You mentioned, you know, trolls said there were times where the stories might be a little juicy, scandalous, but there were also times where it was considered dangerous. Well, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if it's dangerous per se, but uh, <laughs> we certainly have some, uh, for example, proverbs that says that, well, you shouldn't kiss on uh, on the street, for example. And uh, it seems to have been uh, perhaps frowned a bit upon in public and uh, there are also some indications that, uh, for example, there is this reference that if you kiss a priestess, presumably someone who's not meant to be sexually active, then you might uh, lose your ability to speak uh, afterwards. <laughs> Let's not shame people for kissing. It's it's so it's so interesting to look at the photographs and some of the old artifacts and read about your study. You know, we're speaking on Valentine's Day, which is celebrated certainly in North America and other parts of the world. Is it a thing in Denmark? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially during the past, what, 10 years, it's become more and more popular. And uh, a lot of flowers and chocolates are being sold on this mm. day, I would say. You say that with a heavy dose of, um, you say it a bit ruefully. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's a very important tradition, I think. It's like Halloween. It's also important in Denmark. Uh, I think a lot of people enjoy these, what I think most Danes would consider very American traditions, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know. They certainly catch on. Yes. The work you're doing together and the information that, that you've put out there seems more romantic to me. Does it feel that way to the two of you? It was very nice writing it together, I think, and doing some academic work because we're both obviously in, in academia, but in very different fields. So although we often discuss uh, various things we work on independently and and get each other's, you could say, interdisciplinary views on on, on thoughts, then uh, we rarely get the opportunity to do something and write something together. And this was just such a wonderful experience, I think. Yes, it was really a success. And I mean, we didn't file for divorce. So uh, I guess that's a success <laughs> as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It is a success. Uh, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you both. Trolls, Sophie, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for having us. Sophie Lund Rasmussen and Trolls Pank Arbal are Danish academics who've published a commentary on the origins of kissing in the journal Science there in Copenhagen. When you're performing live, anything can happen. What? Wow, I did a terrible job of that opening line. Just a disaster. Nuts. It, wait, I mean, um, 
Actually, I said that perfectly. And if, for some weird reason, you mistakenly remember me butchering that first sentence, I'm a bit concerned about you, frankly. I mean, listen, I have the proof right here. Can we, can we hear that again? When you're performing live, anything can happen. Oh, good. I did an amazing job of that opening line. Just not a disaster. Hooray. See? So you should remember that I did a great job. There's no evidence that I didn't. I did not make an ordinary human error, and neither did Alicia Keys. If you were watching the Super Bowl halftime show on Sunday, you may believe that you heard Ms. Keyes' voice crack slightly when she started singing If I Ain't Got You. You may even have seen a short clip floating around in which that appears to happen. Some people want it all, but I don't want nothing at all. It's no big deal, just a barely noticeable crack before an otherwise flawless duet with Usher. You may not even have noticed it. In fact, you didn't notice it. How could you notice something that didn't happen? Here's how that same moment sounds in the official NFL version of the video on YouTube today. What did you think you were remembering again? A voice crack? An endearing, relatable moment of human imperfection by an amazing musician? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, that was the official video and I didn't hear anything, so nope. Now, there are some people who insist it did happen and that someone, probably Apple Music, which sponsored the performance, wanted to ensure the audio was impeccable even if it wasn't, so they put up that video we just heard and they have taken all the other ones down. Those people say that changing the permanent video record of a public event, no matter how trivial, is disturbing and dyspotian. I mean, dystopian, which, which is why I said it in the first place. Yes, I did. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Today is the anniversary of one of the deadliest school shootings in the U.S., and this afternoon there was another mass shooting there. Multiple people were shot in Kansas City at the end of the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory rally. Six years ago, though, a gunman opened fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Seventeen people were killed, including 17-year-old Joaquin Oliver. Today, some people in the U.S. might pick up the phone and hear Joaquin's voice, though, which has been generated by AI. Hello, I'm Joaquin Oliver. Six years ago, I was a senior at Parkland. Many students and teachers were murdered on Valentine's Day that year by a person using an AR-15. But you don't care. You never did. It's been six years and you've done nothing. Not a thing to stop all the shootings that have continued to happen since. The thing is, I died that day in Parkland. My body was destroyed by a weapon of war. I'm back today because my parents used AI to recreate my voice to call you. Other victims like me will be calling too, again and again, to demand action. How many calls will it take for you to care? How many dead voices will you hear before you finally listen? Every day your inaction creates more voices. If you fail to act now, we'll find someone who will. Patricia Oliver is Joaquin's mother. We reached her in D.C. today. Patricia, I know you've listened to that recreation, that AI generation of your son's voice many times now, but the first time someone played it for you, what did that feel like? Well, uh, I'm not going to say that it's not hard to listen to Joaquin's voice, but today listening 
talking to him about, you know, the concerns that we have and the call to action that he's asking to representative here is very impressive. To be able to recreate the exact same voice is impressive. As a stranger to your family, listening to it, it is difficult to hear. Is that the point? The point is to make people in Congress the ones that they maybe have been getting phone calls from Joaquin make them feel uncomfortable. My hope with these phone calls from Joaquin is to make the staffers who are the ones who take the calls to take a little bit of action after listening what the message is about. And maybe that makes them move forward and present it even because they are impressed or maybe because they want to make something or maybe they will think, okay, this is absurd that these parents are willing to do this and we're not doing nothing and they are capable to do anything in their power to be able to see changes. Yes, it's worth And that's the point. You mentioned Congress. We should we should tell our listeners you, you're at the Capitol right now as you try to yes. get the message out in this latest push because you've been fighting for all of these six years for changes, as we know. The website in particular is called The Shot Line. It allows people to, to lobby their Congress members. How will it work? Yeah, anyone can go to shotline.org and they can pick the voices that they feel more aligned on the same page, you can say whatever you want to send that voicemail, and they will send it to that representative that the person is requested to. And you can send it as many times as you can. You admit that this is personally difficult, of course, but you've also been criticized in the past for using AI, doing an AI video uh, of your son. Uh, that People are concerned that you might be putting words in his mouth. How did you weigh that? Uh, you know, w- did that weigh on you that that Joaquin, your son, may not have wanted you to do this in this way? I am absolutely positive that he will be doing the job that we're doing today. If you were lucky enough to survive on that day, he will be the first in line leading the movement. To your question about how do I know that Joaquin will be doing this kind of campaign is because if you go through his Twitter or X, or if you go through his Instagram, you could see a lot of posts related to phone violence, related to AR-15, related to Sandy Hook. Even there is a little paper that he wrote to his social studies class when he was just 12 years old. His subject was asking for background checks. So for anyone who doubts about what was Joaquin's position and perspective about nonviolence, they can go themselves and check it themselves. I don't need to prove anything. We're going to get critics mm-hmm. always for anything we do because we do our activism in a different way. If you go through the common road, you're not going to see you know, the changes that maybe we can get through our mm-hmm. campaign or through our actions, because we don't only do campaigns, we do a lot of actions. And I want to tell our listeners a little no. bit more, if, if, if they're not familiar, the kind of action you've done in the past, along with your husband, you're uh, among the most outspoken of, of the Parkland parents. You, the, the Associated Press, I should say, describes you as getting in opponents' faces, challenging allies to be brazen. There's profanity in the protests. Your husband has been arrested, including when he climbed a construction crane near the White House to unfurl a banner. Why did you want to turn yeah, to, the, to this on. kind of t- protest? I mean, you hinted at that a moment ago, but, you know, becoming part of rallies or the kinds of protests or commentary on social media that, that people are used to seeing uh, in terms of demonstrations. When did you decide and why did you decide we have to do it a different way? I think that's our way to be, our personalities. Manuel is very outspoken. I am not. So we have a balance there. Anything that we do is with responsibility, with background. We really study and research very well every single project that we get into our hands. I can tell you that the youth is very connected to us. The youth usually doesn't want to be with adults, and they love to be with us. Joaquin would have been in his 20s, 23, uh, I believe, now, at this moment. What do you imagine he would have been doing with his life? 
Well, Joaquin said in one conversation that we have with him that we asked, he asked his dad, Papi, how do you see yourself in the future? Manuel said, well, I don't know. I'm going to grow old. I, maybe I'm going to retire. I'm going to be home. You know? I, I haven't really, I haven't think about what I'm going to be doing. What about you? Uh, he said, I want to be big. I want to be like someone that is well known for what I'm doing. Um, I'm telling you that he's doing that. He's getting a worldwide attention. His voice is being heard in every corner. We have never stopped receiving comments, posts, emails. They found a way to find us and let us know that he is loved around the world, from Japan to Venezuela, where we are from. He is very powerful. His energy is very active, and a lot of people that never knew Joaquin are able to feel it. Patricia, I'm very sorry for your loss, but very thankful that we could speak. Thank you. No, thank you. Take care. Patricia Oliver is the mother of Joaquin Oliver, who was killed in the Parkland school shooting in 2018. She and her husband founded the organization Change the Ref, one of the groups involved with this AI voice campaign. She's in D.C. today. And for more on that story, you can visit our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Last night, with a single-vote majority, the U.S. House of Representatives did something it hasn't done in almost 150 years. It voted to impeach a member of the cabinet, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They accused Mr. Mayorkas of, quote, presiding over a reckless abandonment of border security and releasing hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens into the United States, unquote. Frank Bowman is a legal scholar who was called by the Democrats as a legal expert to testify before the House on the proposed impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. He's also the author of High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. We reached him in Durango, Colorado. Frank, you're an expert in this field. Why do you think this is happening now? The impeachment of of Secretary Mayorkas is occurring because uh, the Republicans have decided that Um, They want to use him as the public face of their arguments about immigration policy. Uh, It is not occurring because uh, Secretary Mayorkas has uh, committed any treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, which is the constitutional standard. Mm -hmm. So this is a purely political exercise. So as, as rare as this is, what you're saying is this isn't the system working as it's supposed to work, using the tools at its disposal. No, it's not. Um, Impeachment in the United States is among the gravest, most solemn constitutional processes that we have. It is supposed to be um, used only to remove officers of the government who have engaged in the most serious kinds of misconduct. Uh, For that reason, uh, there's only been one previous cabinet secretary who has ever been impeached in the entire 235-year constitutional history of the United States, and he was impeached, uh, frankly, because he blatantly committed bribery. Um, In this case, we have uh, not even an allegation, uh, certainly not a serious one, that Secretary Mayorkas has committed any crimes, much less any high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, The allegations against him essentially are complaints about Uh, policy disagreements dressed up in quasi-constitutional language. I can hear the threads of the argument you you must have made, you know, as you were called before the House to testify as an expert witness on this impeachment case. But what was most important for you to to get across as you testified? That um, if one is going to impeach a civil officer of the United States, one must bring forward evidence that indeed he has engaged in conduct that violates the constitutional standard. Um, You can't, or at least you shouldn't, um, impeach or even threaten to impeach people simply because you don't like the president's policy and a particular cabinet officer is the executor of that policy. 
And that's exactly what this was. Um, the allegations against him are often factually false. For example, the claim that he's violated the law of the United States is just factually false. Um, and indeed, you know, one of the one of the points in which they claim he's violated the law, the U.S. Supreme Court has held exactly the opposite. Um, and you know, there are too many other miscellaneous items in the, in the grab bag of allegations um, to go through one by one. But the truth is, there's nothing there. There, I mean, there's not even serious allegation of wrongdoing, much less uh, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. They simply want to use him for political purposes, and by a squeakingly narrow vote, a you know, margin of one, uh, they've done that. So some of the other allegations, the accusations that, that Mayorkas, quote, willfully refused to enforce border laws, and there was a, quote, breach of public trust, end quote, Clearly, you don't feel that those meet the bar, but seeing it squeak through, as you said, how did that sit with you after testifying and making your case? I think it's terribly disappointing. It's not because I testified, but this is a real dereliction of duty by uh, the, the Republican members of the House of Representatives. Truth is, they know perfectly well that what they're doing is both unprecedented and constitutionally wrong. They just don't care. And that has very unfortunate implications for uh, for the country. It has, it has unfortunate implications for the House itself. By by turning this extraordinarily solemn, extraordinarily solemn constitutional process into a, a kind of partisan uh, clown show, uh, they are reducing the capacity of the House and and the Congress itself to address future cases where there really may be uh, an officer, a president, and a cabinet officer who's engaged in serious misconduct. What do you, um, but when you devalue the, the, the process like this, you're reducing your ability to deal with it in the future. And indeed, I think uh, Senate leadership will find ways to dispense with this uh, fairly quickly. That doesn't make it any, any worse or any less or any better or any, any less distressing. Um, because now the Senate is going to have to spend its valuable time dealing with foolishness. That's a bad, a terribly bad thing in and of itself. Apart from what you describe as foolishness, is the entire concept of impeachment losing meaning in American politics? That's often asked, but I think this particular impeachment effort takes us some distance in that direction. On the other hand, I think it's important to distinguish this from the two Trump impeachments. Trump was impeached twice, not because of you know rapid partisanship by Democrats, but because he did bad things twice. He did things twice that plainly rose to the standard of high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, what's troublesome here is uh, you know the, the Republicans have simply decided that they're going to do tit for tat um, because their guy got impeached. Well, we're not going to talk about you know, impeaching everybody uh, who's on the, uh, the the opposing political party, uh, and you know that that is even doesn't even closely approach responsible governance. Professor Bowman, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Frank Bowman is a professor emeritus with the University of Missouri. We reached him in Durango, Colorado. SS Arlington set sail across Lake Superior in 1940. It should have been just an ordinary old wheat delivery day for the steamship. The forecast wasn't too bad at first, but soon the ship and the crew were battling 10-foot waves, and the ship lost that battle. All of the crew members survived, but the ship's mysterious captain, Frederick Tatybug Burke, did not. Now, over 80 years later, the wreck of the Arlington has finally been discovered in Lake Superior. Bruce Lynn is the executive director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society, a nonprofit with two museums dedicated to shipwreck research. His organization was part of the team that discovered the Arlington. We reached him in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. 
Bruce, there are 80 years worth of questions and mystery surrounding this shipwreck, but you and your team have managed to answer a pretty big one so far, the where. So tell me where you and the team ultimately found this shipwreck. Certainly, yes. It's about 35 miles north of a place called Copper Harbor, Michigan's western upper peninsula, and it's up in what's called the Keweenaw Peninsula. Mm -hmm. So going 35 miles north of Copper Harbor, it's really kind of right out in the middle of the lake. Did your team set out that day specifically looking for the SS Arlington? We set out looking for a shipwreck, or at least what we hoped was a shipwreck, and you never quite know, and this was the result of a tip, someone that we know at the organization that uh, has helped us with a lot of research, but to be honest, a lot of the tips we've had in the past have not really uh, amounted to much, so this one we set out hoping that it was a shipwreck, and it was in fact that, no question. I've looked at, at the footage, and these things are always you know, fascinating, but also very eerie to look at. What do you see when you look at that footage? The, the footage is one thing. The sonar imagery is, is something different. But certainly the, the footage itself of the wreck, it, it is very eerie. And the way we're getting that footage, too, I should speak to, it's a small, uh, relatively small ROV, a remotely operated vehicle. It's like a little robot that we send down there. I mean, this, is, this particular wreck is in over 600 feet of water, so it's a little too deep for you know, divers to go down. But we can send that little robot down, and it's got a, a tether on it that has fiber optics, and we can see that imagery on our monitors inside the research boat. And it's sometimes hard to describe. That, you know, it's a very hushed time inside the cabin of that of our research vessel and suddenly you you know you're seeing nothing but water and then suddenly you're seeing you know part of a ship's cabin you're seeing uh, a hatch uh, that's open you're seeing uh, portholes trying to see inside you're seeing gangways and um it is eerie it's it's you know i mean because we're the first people to look upon this ship since may of 1940 you're also looking at, at the burial place of one person. We know the crew survived of this ship, but the captain, Frederick Tadybug Burke, did not. And we'll, and we'll talk in a minute about the questions and circumstances about, about all of that. But did you find anything related directly to the captain, remains in particular, or anything, you know, that belonged to him? You know, we did not. Mm-hmm. No, we, we've not seen anything like that. And, and, and to be honest, we, you know, for any wrecks, and we've found about 13 in the last two, and well, about last three years, we've, we just never see anything like that. Mm-hmm. And we, we didn't in this case either. Okay, so the questions about what happened. I mentioned there are so many mysteries. But first of all, the course they took, I was reading that, you know, that the crew was suggesting a different course, but the captain disagreed. What do you know about that? Yes, that's an interesting part of the story, too. And I think, you know, any of these shipwrecks, what makes them interesting is really the kind of the the human story that goes along with it. And in this particular instance, um, you have Captain Burke, who, you know, 30 plus years on the lakes, uh, he, the man knew what he was doing. He'd been in two other shipwrecks in the past, and he had really always acted, at least from everything we've read, with presence of mind and in really great courage in one case where he saved two other crew members who were trapped below decks. But they, uh, when they left Port Arthur, and this is the end of April 1940, you know, they had some weather reports that indicated maybe they would get into some rough weather, but nothing, nothing dramatic, nothing too unusual. But they, uh, they took off across the lake, and the weather was getting nastier and, and just getting worse. The winds were getting stronger, and the waves were getting bigger. And so the, the first mate, who was also a very seasoned veteran of the lakes, uh, determined that probably the wisest course would be to uh, let's let's turn for that North Shore, that Canadian, that Ontario North Shore, and we can get, you know, the lee of the mainland, and, and you know, hopefully the, the waves won't be quite as dramatic, and they won't get beaten up so much. And he, you know, steered a course for that. The captain now at this point, and this, this is another unusual aspect of the story, had been in his cabin most of the time, but he must have sensed that a different motion of the ship mm-hmm. uh, meant that they had had a course change. So he went up to the pilot house and saw what the course was and, and ordered uh, for them to resume the previous course. So they did that, but it was getting worse. So he did order eventually another course change. But again, the captain came up and ordered them to resume that original course. The chief, chief engineer, just terribly concerned about this ship, seeing how much water was coming in and knowing the pumps couldn't keep up, actually, and he had access to a cord he could pull 
and he he pulled the cord a number of times, which alerted the crew abandoned ship. Now that that's a little bit different too, because typically the captain would yeah. be doing that. So they just uh, they they didn't wait. For, I mean, and probably very good decision on and their part not to wait for official orders. Uh, they got themselves to safety, and everyone that's survived. It. Exactly. But not the captain. Why did Captain Burke stay on board? Well, that's that's the million dollar question, I think. Um, and and you know, if you look at Captain Burke's history as a sailor, at least as much as we've been able to research it, he it was very very much unlike him to be in his cabin, you know, throughout that trip, uh, and to only be emerging maybe to countermand an order here or there. But at that point, he was actually up in the pilot house, and as the wheelsman was departing the pilot house and headed back to the one, they only had one serviceable lifeboat. The other one had been damaged in the storm. And as the wheelsman departed the pilot house, the captain made it pretty clear that that's where he was going to stay. And uh, the wheelsman had to explain this to the first mate and the rest mm-hmm. of the crew, but they also knew that ship wasn't going to last a whole lot longer. Mm-hmm. So they cast away from the ship, and um, really the last thing that many of them saw uh, was the captain waving from the pilot house, pretty much, uh, you know, as, I guess as if to say goodbye at that mm-hmm. point. This is all from written accounts that the survivors have left over time, I presume? Yep, that's exactly. Newspaper articles and um, interviews mm-hmm. and uh, also uh, different articles that we've been able to research. Bruce, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your reaching out to us. Bruce Lynn is the executive director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. We reached him in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Their snouts are long, their tongues even longer, but none of that compares to their longing for each other. Today we bring news of Manny and Cayenne. In what has been billed as an exclusive report, NPR has revealed a heartwarming story of love and perseverance between two anteaters at Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C. As the zookeepers tell it, there was chemistry from the start between Manny and Cayenne. The two were observed hanging out and, quote, rolling around, unquote. So Manny and Cayenne were paired together to breed. But when Cayenne still wasn't pregnant after a few years, the zoo summoned a reproductive specialist. Before the vets could present that uh, anteater with a number of tests, Cayenne presented them with a number of test ickles, uh, two, presumably, because Cayenne is male. And Manny and Cayenne remain happily coupled. We can only hope the specialist let the keepers down genitally. Now, Manny and Cayenne reminded us of another zoo love story, the heartwarming tale of Vulture 1 and Vulture 2, who don't seem to have better names. The two male griffin vultures had been in a monogamous relationship for years at the artist Amsterdam Royal Zoo when 1 and 2 suddenly welcomed 3. Joop van Tol was a zookeeper at the artist's zoo at the time. From our archives, here's his conversation with our former host, Carol Off. Yo, let's start with the egg. So uh, where did you find this abandoned vulture egg? Yeah, well, normally you have just uh, a couple of vultures, and vultures are really close towards uh, one another. They're monogamous animals. So uh, normally they build a nest first, and then they lay an egg, and they'll breed it. But this one I found on the floor of the aviary. So that was a little different. And I found it, and there was no vulture breeding it. So. Um, then, for safety reasons, we put it in the incubator, and we were, of course, of course, also uh, curious on whether it would be fertile or not. And it was. So that was kind of like a big surprise for us that there was a little vulture chick growing inside that egg. And so, you see, you, you determined there was a little, little chick inside the egg, and so how did you find some parents who might be willing to nurse that chick and bring it, into, in, bring it to being hatched? Well, that's the beautiful story. We have several uh, uh, strong couples in our aviary. We've had them for years. And also for years, we've had a a male couple in our aviary. And that happens a lot in the bird world, but also in the animal kingdom. Same-sex couples are really quite normal. And every year, you would really see that they chose for each other. 
Again, they're monogamous, so they have to bond. They have to trust each other. And these two males did that with 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 each other. And um, every January, they they would start building nests, and they would mate. And of course, unfortunately, being two guys, they weren't able to produce an egg. Knowing this, we thought immediately this is the perfect opportunity for these male vultures to actually give them a fertile real egg and have give them the opportunity to maybe hatch and raise a chick. So that's kind of unique. How, that never happened before. How did they respond? How did these, these two fellows respond when you gave them the egg? Well, it wasn't a surprise. Um, we've... Uh, uh, We've, we've bailed up, you know, we wanted to know, are they good enough? Are they good breeders? They have to breed for two months. So that's quite a long time. Of course, they do it together, but still, it's a long time. And therefore, we especially designed an artificial egg for them, and we gave it to them. And we've been doing that for a couple of years. And also gave us the opportunity to see whether they would be able to uh, uh, complete the circle, you know, to complete the breeding period. So if I understand, so you, you gave them this fake egg for all these years and you determined from that that they were nurturing, that they would care for this egg. Yeah, and they took it very seriously. We've let them build up experience in breeding. We know that they did perfectly all the time. We replaced it, and we give them the real, uh, the real egg. And then um, after a couple of days, you know, we were curious and a little bit nervous. We climbed up the rock to take a little peek and see what happened. And then we saw this little chick moving underneath these, these brave guys, and, and that was an unbelievable sight. What are they doing as parents? I mean, are they, are they working? Do they, have they d- divided their roles? Are they both taking care of the chick? Describe that, if you would. Absolutely. It's, um, uh, for both species, they really have to work together. That's why they're monogamous. Monogamous animals really have a big task, and they need each other. Otherwise, they won't be successful. So um, what's the task for these vultures? One of them is staying on a nest keeping the chick warm, protecting it for other vultures, protecting it, and the other one goes out to forage for food. And when it comes back, they can alternate their tasks. And that's also why two males are capable of raising a chick. There's no difference between a female role and a male role, for for example. So that's why it's not that weird, you know. The DNA in the male griffin vulture is built in to, to, to raise a chick. The two males are perfectly capable to do so. And is the chick's doing well? The chick's doing fantastically. <laughs> you know, it's, it's unbelievable to see how fast these chicks are growing, you know. And uh, when they're three months old, they're about as big as their parents, and they fledge and they flee. And um, it's, it's a wonderful sight to see. So this one chick, though, has two dads. And so I, I do, is that common? I mean, have you seen... Same-sex couples, male or female, adopting an egg and and raising a chick? Well, they're capable to do so, you know. And besides, uh, homosexuality or same-sex couples is very common in the animal kingdom. You know, homosexuality is a natural thing. Um, I'm a penguin keeper, uh, uh, for instance, also. And in penguin species, homosexuality is very, very common, and so there are many other species. The only unique thing and the, is, is that you don't really get a chance to, uh, uh, for them to actually give them a fertile egg because they don't produce them themselves. So that's what makes this event absolutely unique. But the behavior for these animals and the fact that they chose for each other is actually quite normal for them. If you could be able to ask them, they would say, what, what do you think? Well, this is perfectly normal to us. <laughs> Job, it's great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. From 2017, former host Carol Off speaking with Job van Tol, zookeeper at the Artists Amsterdam Royal Zoo.
You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.